Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support the show on there, you can. And basically, you get a weekly bonus episode. Right now, we're covering all of The Mandalorian. We're actually going to cover the finale next week, but you can go back and listen to all those episodes. Uh, next, we're going to cover WandaVision. So, you know, we've got stuff like that on there that's not movies, and then also my weekly roundup of whatever I've seen that week. Um, I want to take a moment, though, to thank my top patrons, and they are Chris Balga, Michael Cross, Philip Barker, and Ricardo Alvarez. Thank you so much for keeping the lights on. Uh, we also have a website if you want to check that out, I love that moviepodcast.com. And lastly, I want to say, guys, if you enjoy what you heard today, please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen to it because it does help new listeners find us. Well, I've got a returning guest on here today. I've got Gordon Smith. Say hi, Gordon. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Great to be back. And Gordon, if they haven't heard your other episodes, which are great, they should go back and listen to those. But yes. would you mind introducing yourself real quick? Uh, my name is Gordon K. Smith. I am a writer, filmmaker, uh, hardcore movie geek, particularly science fiction, but I do love all genres. And someday we'll talk about other things, other subjects. But <laughs> we I, don't mind. We love sci-fi on here. <laughs> I love the science fiction classics. I'm a teacher at Collin College in Plano and a film editor, film writer, among other things, I was uh, one of the first and longest employees of Blockbuster Entertainment. I used to write all those little blurbs on the back of the VHS boxes you took home. And uh, that was one of many things I did for them. I was uh, interviewed by National Public Radio once for some of my film resurrection work. And I've produced many tribute reels for film festivals uh, for stars I guess the one I'm most proud of is the one I did for Martin Landau in 2017. Um, he died a few months, about six months after I did it. And at the request of his family, it was shown at his memorial service in Hollywood. That's got to be one of the most rewarding things you could give back as a fan, as I'm sure you were a fan of his too. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Gordon, that's awesome. I, by the way, I always tell people about your blockbuster story <laughs> just because oh, i love blockbuster i love you know went there so much growing up and i miss it you know every time i see people posting about reminiscing about it i'm like oh, it's time we can't get back you know the time spent 
in the in the in the our local blockbuster. That those were well, some I good think memories. If I if I remember right, you were not aware that blockbuster started in Dallas until I. Came. I was not. You are like the king of you know knowing everything that started here in Dallas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you you've got all the hookups even when we talk about films. But no, I didn't know that. There's so many companies that started here that I I did not realize till I was older. Yeah, that's um, so cool. And uh, it was, uh, you know, bought out by the South Florida gazillionaire, H. Wayne, is H. Wayne Huizenga, and the operation did move out to Florida in the 90s, but then it came back to Dallas. I was with them the whole time. Wow. You know, it's funny when I was telling some people about that, I could tell that I feel like I'm full of stories, probably because I talked to so many people, but <laughs> I was telling them about that and they were kind of looking at me like, are you sure it really started in Dallas? It's funny because uh -huh. you were there for like the inception of it, uh, you know, for sure. But, it, it, you know, people my age that sort of, you know, didn't get to see the inception of it. Uh, it it's funny that we didn't realize that this whole time, just well, because you, you just think of Blockbuster as so, you know, uh, nationwide that it's just not something that I had thought of. It became ubiquitous, my favorite word, uh, <laughs> in the 90s. But you can tell them that the Applebee's in Medallion Center at Skillman and Northwest Highway used to be the world's first blockbuster store. Wow. Okay. I was going to ask you that. That is good intel. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, Gordon, you know, you've been on here a couple of times and you've picked some great films. I Love talking about these older sci-fi flicks. Uh, what movie did you choose today? Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1956. Yep. I I know that I've seen this movie before. Like, as I was watching it, I wasn't surprised by any of the plot points. I just can't remember the first time I saw it. What, what was the first time that you saw this movie? I believe the first time I saw it, and I had read about it for years, I... You know, from the time I could read, practically, I was reading on movies and knew a lot about them before I ever saw them. In those days, you just had to wait until some local TV station showed it. So right, right. I, think I saw it on an afternoon movie in Lubbock where I grew up sometime probably the late 60s, early 70s. Well, I'm giving my age away here, but uh, <laughs> and I believe no that's the first time I saw it. Of course, I've seen it many times since. I had the absolute pleasure about 2007. Uh, I was asked by festival people in Houston to come down and be a host of these, what they were calling the Silver Screams with an M festival, <laughs> a horror, classic horror festival in Houston. Oh, that sounds they fun. They had a 35 millimeter print of uh, wow. the Body Snatchers. And uh, of course, it was like, seeing it for the first time and i could really appreciate the look and the pacing of it and everything uh you this, know yeah every great this movie film, has great pacing yeah it has to be seen in a has to be seen in a theater agreed um you know i don't want to give away any spoilers if you haven't seen this before uh we will dive into spoilers in this show though so i would suggest going and watching it and then coming back uh, I actually rented this on iTunes, <laughs> ah. so you can rent it there. Uh, I didn't see it streaming anywhere. I, I was hoping it was going to be on like HBO, be, um, on HBO Max, because you know there's a lot of classic films under the Turner Classic Film section, but it wasn't on there, so I rented it. Uh, but once you do listen to it and you come back, uh, you know here's the synopsis, and we'll kind of go forward with the show. Uh, 
In Santa Mira, California, Dr. Miles Bennell is baffled when all his patients come to him with the same complaint. Their loved ones seem to have been replaced by emotionless imposters. Despite others' dismissive denials, Dr. Bennell and his former girlfriend Becky and his friend Jack soon discovered that the patient's suspicions are true. An alien species of human duplicates grown from plant-like plot, uh, plant-like pods. That's like a tongue twister plant like pods <laughs> is yeah. taking over the town yep that's yep that's it <laughs> that's and what I happens say to people if you're taking no wait i've seen that before well guess what guys been made remade three times it's been yeah. ripped off copied imitated to this day many 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 times tv shows movies um and is is one of the most influential films and it's been reinterpreted on many levels uh over the years as to what its real theme is and it does have a very uh a very sharp theme and it's one of those handful of classics science fiction classics of the 50s and we talked about the day the earth stood still you had some other guys talking about forbidden planet Mm -hmm. that were groundbreaking films for reasons we'll discuss and they're just still being referenced and remade and ripped off to this day yeah, that's true. Even if you haven't seen this movie before, the plot will feel very familiar because if you haven't seen one of the reboots or something that's ripped it off, like you're saying, I mean, just the sheer influence of some of the themes. Like I was even thinking, uh, reading the description about, you know, emotion and things like that. I even think about films like, you know, uh, Equilibrium or, you know, any any yeah. sort of big brother uh, kind of sci-fi movie where emotions are sort of outlawed. Um, so even if they haven't seen the specific movie, they're going to feel like they've seen it before <laughs> because they've seen so many nods to it. Now, now, what I've noticed about the remakes, the first one being, and, and there being be a lot of people who know the 1978 version with Donald Sutherland, Mm-hmm. And Leonard, Leonard Nimoy, and that was the last, the last non-Star Trek major film role that Leonard Nimoy ever had. Uh, oh, I, I don't think I realized that. Wow. Yeah, uh, at a feature film, uh, that, and then again in 1993, version called Body Snatchers, just called Body Snatchers. And then one more time in about 2007 with Nicole Kidman. Daniel Craig, and that version is just called Invasion. So maybe someone's oh, going to okay. do one just called D. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that the Invasion one was another reboot of it. It is. It is credited. <laughs> it is credited to the original source. And But each decade that it's make, made in finds a new theme, a new interpretation of it, a new villain, a, a new... Uh, uh, well, we'll get into that later. Uh, finds a new interpretation on 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 uh, what it's making a comment on. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm excited to to discuss those theories. Um, I actually wanted to start, you know, with a couple of quick facts that I had, and and you know, of course, jump in uh, with your thoughts and and with some of your facts too. Uh, the first one that I have, actually, we're going to kind of touch on what you're bringing up. Uh, Kevin McCarthy and author Jack Finney have always denied the rumor that this story is a statement against McCarthyism and communism. They just saw it as a thriller. 
Uh, Director Don Siegel, however, believes that the political references to uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy and totalitarianism are inescapable, even though he tried not to emphasize them. What are are your thoughts on that? Well, Don Siegel was often fond of saying he thought the real pod people were studio executives. Uh, (laughs) I can imagine any artist feeling that way, especially back then. Like the ones at Allied Artists, where it was made that they had a huge dispute with during the making of, I'll get into later, but but let me give you a first little background on what you're talking about, because the film has been interpreted as being about the McCarthyist era of the 50s. And mm-hmm. just to just to be clear on things, Kevin McCarthy was not related to Joseph McCarthy, the senator who started the McCarthyism is the reason why we had the phrase McCarthyism, which was uh called the anti-communist witch hunts where people were just terrified that communism was everywhere, that particularly people who were liberals, who were free thinkers, were commies, people (laughs) who were educators and showbiz. They literally thought that people making movies and TV shows and music were planning communist ideas in the brains of people and that they had to to, uh, get rid of them. That's why so many of those people lost their jobs. Now, he was related, Kevin McCarthy, the actor, the star, was related to Senator Eugene McCarthy, who ran for president in 1968, ran against LBJ. Interesting. I was kind of wondering about that, reading about that. Now, he is also not related to our current Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, who Mm -hmm. is much in the news now. And there have also been many, it's also been a very common DJ named Kevin McCarthy. I've heard of several DJs named Kevin McCarthy. Uh, (laughs) Just a popular name, I guess. He had a famous sister named Mary McCarthy who wrote a a novel, a very famous novel called The Group, which was made into a movie in the 60s. That was his sister. So for literary people out there. So so people have interpreted, now the hugely interesting thing about about uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, because there were many films that commented on the McCarthyism, and, and Martin Scorsese was always fond of saying the ones who could, the ones who could, now, granted, most of the films made who were overt about it were pro-McCarthyist. They kind of had to be, you know, if right. they wanted to stay in business, because that's when studios were having to take loyalty pledges. Nobody could, nobody could, could, dare make a anti-McCarthyism movie for a major studio in those days, they would have lost their jobs. They would have been fired. But the ones who could make subtle references to it and be against it, as Scorsese pointed out, were Westerns and science fiction, like High Noon is largely considered to be an anti-McCarthy movie because, you know, once again, it's about a man trying to fight evil, infiltrating his town, and no one will help him. They're all afraid mm-hmm. to help. They don't want to be, they don't want to lose their jobs either. So he has to face them down themselves. Now, so science fiction and Westerns, but the doubly interesting thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that it can be interpreted both ways as being pro or anti-McCarthy. And I was pe- thinking that too, watching it. Exactly. Yeah. And people have, have interpreted it both ways. And they had said, well, the pod people, if, if you interpret it as being the pro-McCarthy, pro that those whole ideas started by McCarthyism, then the pod people are communists, as we were told. And I'm old enough that that kind of education was still happening in the early 60s when I was in school, when they were telling us that 
communists were anti-Christian. They were trying to brainwash everybody. They were, you know, hardly not even human. And, and people in the 50s really and truly thought that, you know, communism was going to do that to our brains, was going to take over our brains. There are a few uh, pro-McCarthyist uh, uh, sci-fi movies, too, where it's very clear that the, the, the aliens, the, the menace is communist. War of the Worlds, mm. a movie I love, but it's still pretty clear that the yeah. Martians uh, represent commies. And even the poster to Invasion of the Body Snatchers is very red. Yes. <laughs> you can always tell <laughs> That's by the true. references to red. And the little blurb from uh, Collier's Magazine. Now, the film was based on a serial that ran in Collier's Magazine by a writer named Jack Finney. And so the blurb on the poster says, the nightmare that threatens the world. So guess which mm. nightmare they were probably thinking about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought that because, you know, it, it does remind me like that the pod people, you know, they're taking over, they're making everyone act the same, you know, right. it reminds you of conformity. So I could definitely see it being interpreted that way as well. Now, if you, if you interpret it as anti McCarthyish, then somebody like the Kevin McCarthy character instantly sees everybody is getting brainwashed. They're all buying this witch hunt stuff. They are the pod people. And uh, he's trying to get away from that mindset. He's trying to flee before it uh, invades his, uh, his loved ones, his family, and that he takes everyone's gone crazy in the small towns. Now, Gee, uh, we wouldn't know anything about that in today's atmosphere, would we? About people <laughs> no kidding. drinking I can't some lie. really I bad Kool-Aid, uh, coming from high on high and becoming like monstrous. So yeah, and and also the you know talking specifically about not being able to emote. Right. Um, that part, you know, made me think about, you know, the attack on the arts in the 50s. Um, but yeah, I can't lie. I did think about the parallels to now. It's, uh, you know, exactly. we're all viewing that under that lens anyway, because of how extreme things are right now. But yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so, um, and again, exactly the whole thing about the pod people, if you haven't seen it, you can recognize the pod people because their personalities have completely changed and mm -hmm. they're, they're devoid of emotions. And so their loved ones start coming to Dr. Miles Bennett, the character played by Kevin McCarthy in this small town called Santa Mira, which means holy look in Spanish, kind of tells you something. It's filmed mostly in Glendale, uh, California. And uh, which is another thing to note, this is a groundbreaking sci-fi movie in many ways because the heroes are not scientists, they're not military. Oh, uh, you're right. Military doesn't get into it. The scientists don't get into it. And it's a doctor. It's a doctor. Yeah. And it's kind of scarier because of that, because I think once you have the military and scientists, you just feel like they can handle it somehow, yeah. even though, you know, that's not true. <laughs> but exactly. if there were like pod people coming here, they wouldn't automatically have a game plan for that, that we know of. Yeah. But um, it, Most... it's scary. And it's just some, uh, a small town doctor. Yeah. He's a small town doctor who, who realizes you know, everybody's drinking some really bad Kool-Aid, you know, there's yeah. what's going over everybody. They're all watching too much Fox news. What's happening to them. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> uh, 
So it's been interpreted both ways, and I think it's fascinating. I can't even think of too many other movies that can have that kind of duality. That they I can agree. be interpreted on either side of a of an issue like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, what did Don Siegel think? Well, he kind of he's quoted as saying, you know, at one point I think it's studio executives, or at another point, <laughs> uh, who we thought the pop people might be. Now, for those who think, I have to do point out, Don Siegel was a great action director, B movie director. He got to start doing montages. The opening montage in Casablanca was done by Don Siegel. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's exactly. very cool. Which is on Turner Classic right now as we speak. Uh, he was an editor yeah. and, and made montages. And um, he later became very associated with Clint Eastwood's films. He directed several of them. Mm. And Eastwood gave him cameos at several. So if you think that... Uh, Don Siegel was this flaming liberal who was making this statement uh, against McCarthyism. Bear in mind, this is the man who made Dirty Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Not, not exactly a film of bleeding heart liberalism. <laughs> so right. Yeah. You do not, have to keep that in mind. Not exactly. That is funny. That's really good information. Yeah. Well, uh, the the other one of the other facts that I had was that during test screenings, much of the film's original humor and humanity was actually cut because the audience found it kind of difficult to follow. They laughed at the wrong moments, and so the studio insisted on edits because it wasn't policy at the time uh, to mix humor with horror. Yeah, this is a very intriguing part of the story. I had. Uh, also, uh, you know, if you read, read up on it, the um, it explains, among other things, the kind of short running time on it, even for a B-movie made in the 50s. I noticed that, yeah. Until they tacked on the new ending to it, it was only 76 minutes. Now, that's kind of good news and bad news. Um, that does make it move really rapidly, like a breakneck speed in a breathless pace. You're not sidetracked uh, by uh, humor or... Now, I would give anything to see what was cut. And Donald Siegel and the cast fought real hard against that. They wanted to keep that in there. Mm. And they supposedly even took a tape recorder to the first screening to record both the screams and the laughs. But when they played it back to Allied Artists, you know, head honchos, they said, no, we don't want any laughs. There should only be screams. So they cut, uh, I don't know, a good 10, 15 minutes of it. It does explain the short running time. But Mm. uh, another problem with that is that there's parts of the story that are vague as to what exactly is happening and how it's happening. Like when the neighbors, when they're friends, King Donovan and Imogene Coca, King Donovan was in several other uh, uh, yeah, the ta- we'll talk about the cast here. Kevin McCarthy, Dana Winter, I'll talk about her in a minute, and their friends, Kevin, uh, that are played by uh, King Donovan and Imogene Coca. She was a, not Imogene Coca, I'm sorry, that was his real-life wife, Carolyn Jones, later famous as Morticia on the Adams Family. King Donovan and Carolyn Jones, uh, one of the pot people just shows up on their pool table. It's just there. They don't really yeah. say much about <laughs> how it true. got there where it came from. And, the and also general, the advice was really weird. He's like, 
well, let's just leave it there. Yeah. And then if you're still there tomorrow, we'll call the police. And I was like, what? In what yeah. world would you go into someone's house, see basically a dead body and go, let's just wait and deal with this in the morning. Like yeah, it's that a very, was weird. A very bizarre dead body with no <laughs> fingerprints. And, uh, yeah. and, and the entire assimilation process of how the pod people become the living people, how they clone them is pretty vague. And, mm, and yeah. it seems to change during the film. There's been some theories about that as to how it happens. So I'm guessing, I'm making an educated guess that a lot of that information got lost when they cut the humor out of it. Uh, it, it also was interesting to me because um, I feel like it's been, I'm not going to say a new trend, but more modern films have comedy mixed with horror and it seems like, you know, the execs telling them to keep that out. I guess that was like a higher level decision for a long time before they started relaxing that. It's not yeah. like a new idea. It's probably like artists wanted to do that. They just kind of were held back by what studios told them to do. I, it has to be done right. If it's done right, it's great. I mean, uh, Spielberg usually does it right. Look mm -hmm. at the way he combined humor and horror and Jaws and, and Close Encounters in... Many, many films, Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. Poltergeist, when yeah. That's wrong, it can kill the mood or kill the pacing. True. Uh, I would give anything to see the cut scenes and see if they were like sardonic humor that fit the whole rest of the film or if it really, really would have ruined it. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a good point. Like, did it detract from it? Like yeah, they said, uh, that could be too. Did it detract? And to my knowledge, the footage doesn't exist. I've never huh. heard of it being found anywhere. I would dearly love to see it. Now, the, the 1978 version directed by Philip Kaufman, which I like a lot on several levels, uh, does have humor. It has some great humor in it. Uh, that's very sardonic. One of my favorite lines now in that film is Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams in the two leads and their friends are played by Jeff Goldblum and uh, 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 Veronica Cartwright. And uh, or Angela Cartwright. I always get the Cartwright sisters mixed up as to which one it is, but I think it's <laughs> and they're looking at the the gross looking strange body on the table. And Jeff Goldblum, they're, they've kind of figured out it must be from outer space. And Jeff Goldblum starts touching it. And Veronica Cartwright says, don't touch that. You don't know where it's been. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> that one successfully uses humor. Now, I will say, uh, and by the way, uh, Kevin McCarthy has a cameo, uh, what may be the greatest cameo of all time, in the second version, pl basically playing the same character. Interesting. I, uh, I haven't seen the 1978 one. So. Oh, you haven't? It's uh -uh. worth seeing. I don't think they okay. knew how to. They. I don't think they knew how to end it. Mm. I think the ending is really silly. <laughs> <laughs> or for me, it nearly ruins it. I don't think they knew what to do with the ending. Uh, but uh, otherwise, it's very well made. Uh, and I think, the, I, I've, you know, being McCarthyism not really existing in the 70s, sure. I think it takes a real subtle jab at born-again Christian, at born-again oh. Christian and, and that movement because as maybe them being the pod people at one point, Leonard Nimoy, when you find out that he's really one of them, he says, just go to sleep. You'll be born again. Mm. As a pod yeah, you could kind of remake it, you know, to fit whatever 
exactly you know that era is is sort of struggling with or at odds with or yeah that's interesting precisely um, each each remake i think has a new target now the one in 93 which is made by abel ferrara starts meg tilly um it's set on a military base in alabama and i think it's anti-military mm, that uh, would make sense in the 90s uh, 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 <laughs> yeah of depicting the military is all mindless clones uh with no emotion and as more than one critic pointed out it's it, that's kind of a pointless comparison because military people are kind of taught to be mindless clones you know? <laughs> right they're following orders as part of how military yeah, functions supposed so to if follow you criticize orders. that it's like well yeah, that, 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 <laughs> yeah. that's kind of like an, you know an, a, a an incorrect analogy you know like a point right. analogy now uh yeah, we are not anti-military here. Yeah, <laughs> I want to exactly. say much respect to uh, those who serve. <laughs> 2007 version is such a mess. I can't tell who it's, what target they have for it. Well, and yeah, I don't think I've seen that one. Is that the one in, you're talking about that's with uh, Nicole Kidman? Nicole Kidman, yeah. It's, it was a notorious bomb. It was like a mess. It was recut, reshot many times. They brought in the war chuck. Well, they were still the Warchowski brothers then, as we now know, as we know, they're now the Warchowski sisters. Right. Uh, but they were still the Warchowski brothers then, and they reshot some of it. I finally watched it uh, a year ago or so, and I was doing something on Veronica Cartwright, because she's in it too. She's in both those versions. Oh. And it's really terrible. The direction is terrible in it. Yeah. You know, the stakes are high when you try to recreate something that's so classic. It's like you better bring something new to the table. Yeah. You know, justify why such something so good has to be redone. And it's, you know, sometimes I think they try a little too hard to to veer away from the source material and it can be kind of disastrous. Yeah, it completely like again again, I wasn't sure what point they were trying to make, but it's 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 completely <laughs> divorced from the whole concept of the first film which is small towns and you know in the 50s the small towns were just this this uh this great thing that people thought was the bedrock of america where they thought the communists would probably find their greatest stronghold is in small towns and that you know the small towns are the the home front of america what if it's happened there uh, Isn't that funny how we're still like you hear that this this kind of you know this fear about invasion of the suburbs even today? Yeah, yeah. it's interesting, and 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 that 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 gets so duplicated. Like even you know I was talking about at the top of the show that we're going to talk about Wandavision, and on that show you know they're they're like in a small town and sort of you know don't want to give away too much, but you, you get from the promos it's like they're in a quote unquote, perfect sort of Pleasantville type place. And Pleasantville also, it's like, you know, uh, this small town that seems perfect, but something sinister is, you know, happening underneath it. Um, it seems like it's duplicated so often. Yeah, I will point out, um, again, back to the original film, it was not it was not the first science fiction film in the 50s to have a theme about identity takeover. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the 1951 version of the thing was kind of interesting for eliminating that because in the in the novel it's based on, the 1939 novel it's based on, 
the alien invader does take over people's identity, just like it does in John Carpenter's remake Mm -hmm. of of 1982. But um, uh, Howard Hawks eliminated that concept for the 1951 version. Maybe Um, he just thought, you know, people couldn't, it was too difficult a concept to understand or something. So it took a couple of years later for It Came From Outer Space, which was written by Ray Bradbury, that film to to do that concept of identity takeover, uh, directed by Jack Arnold. It's a minor classic in itself, but it also it doesn't have the political under theme, the political subtext that uh, that Invasion of the Body Snatchers has. And in that film, and it came from outer space, the hero is a scientist. Richard Carlson is a scientist, and it yeah, doesn't and have it the. Common in those types of films. Yeah, it doesn't have the momentum. It doesn't have the forward thrust, and not a lot happens in that film until about the last fifteen minutes. And it's gotcha. still good. It's still worth seeing. Then the idea was kind of done again uh, a little bit later in Invaders from Mars, but Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And by the way, the story was just called Body Snatchers, and the Body Snatchers, the original syndicated uh, magazine serial. And they decided they didn't want to call it The Body Snatchers because there was a a Boris Karloff horror film 10 years before that called The Body Snatchers, which had nothing to do with aliens. It was about 19th century body snatchers, but apparently they didn't want to get it confused with that. So they they tacked on the invasion, which made it sound, which kind of cheapened it, made it sound like a really cheap, sleazy Roger Corman movie or something and it's anything. Yeah, it kind of does. It sounds, you know, like something else is happening. <laughs> but yeah. uh in at, at least with the word invasion though, it it does sort of automatically introduce the ideas of the idea of like an alien versus like grave robbing. Right. Exactly. Like they did want to have something that indicated it was science fiction. Now both uh it came from outer space and invasion of the body snatchers have a climax in Bron- good old Bronson Cave out in L.A. And the first time I went out to L.A., I had some of my film geek friends out there showed me the locations that they oh, shot cool. invasion of the body snatchers out on in there at in Glendale and Chatsworth and then good old Bronson Cave or Bronson uh, uh, Bronson Cave where many, many sci-fi movies, a lot of Westerns too, but a lot of sci-fi movies have been shot there, including that climax. It's quite famous mm-hmm. movie location. And uh, The Outer Limits show used it several times, uh, just many, many times. You can just Google Bronson Cave and you'll, you'll find it. Uh, also want to point out, uh, it was one of the first films inducted, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was inducted into the uh, Library of Congress, uh, uh, their designation of films to be preserved, you know, oh, which really? they come up with a list every year. And that was on the first list in 1994. Uh, God, I'm forgetting the actual name they give that, but the Library of Congress list of, of um, honored films. And that was on there the first or second year they did it. Uh, and it was when the AFI did their list when they used to do their specials and they did their list of the top 10 science fiction films, it was on their list. So uh, with good reason. Yeah. So knowing that, keeping that in mind and, and the, the kind of short runtime that we've talked about, I also read that it was filmed in 19 days and that the cast and the crew work six days a week with Sundays off. 
And the production went over schedule by three days because of the night for night shots that the director wanted. Yeah, it was like, I would call it a B plus movie. It was not (laughs) a list movie. It was a B plus movie. And that's would not have been too unusual a a, uh, shooting time for that. So uh, Donald Siegel was known as a very efficient director and most of it shot at night. Uh, Yeah. The the, uh, suspense parts and it's very suspenseful. I mean, if Hitchcock had made a sci-fi movie, it would have been like that. And, I agree. And yeah. all as shot at night uh, with pacing that just never stops. If you get to see it in a theater without commercials, it is truly suspenseful. And now yeah. it's also quite famous that the first version of it, the 76 minute version, was just too disturbing for people. And it ended really? with the Kevin McCarthy character uh, running down the, the highway, uh, dodging cars, screaming, you're next, you're next, they're coming for you next. And which, again, people interpret as saying, the commies are coming, the commies are coming for you next. <laughs> uh, you know, the the people who think it's pro-communist. And, and from what I've read, Kevin McCarthy, who I got to meet, uh, nearly died. <laughs> they were terrified he was going to get run over because they'd been shooting all night. And he was like exhausted. Oh they were scared to death he was going to get run over. And, you know, lucky for us all, he, he wasn't. But that was they thought that ending uh, was too, too frightening, too disturbing for people. And they weren't used to science fiction movies with an unhappy ending. You know, it was supposed to be... Uh, you know, they kill the monster, they blow up the aliens, uh, they fix the uh, whatever it is, and everybody's happy at the end. You know, like one of those movies where everybody's laughing and happy after they've just been through a horrible experience. Don't you love those? <laughs> and, uh, hey, ha, 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 laugh, laugh, crack jokes. And so they went back and they shot a framing sex segment at the beginning and end where Kevin McCarthy's character, where Dr. Miles Bennett, has been picked up by the police and he's being examined by a psychiatrist and uh, good old Richard Deacon and Whit Bissell, and their names are not in the credits because the credits were finished before they shot the new ending, which brought the running time back up to about 79 or 80 minutes. And uh, okay. which, you know, some people like the ending. I know the critic Danny Perry liked the new ending. And other people said, you know, it does kind of make it conform to the style that gives it kind of a, not a total happy ending, but it's left with the feeling that now the authorities finally believe him and they're going to uh, do something about it. Now, if you look up the, uh, now they did, uh, finally, they did find the 76 minute version without the bookends. And that was that has been screened. I think they mm. screened it in the eighties or nineties, so it is possible to see it now. Um, they uh, forgot where I was going with that. That's okay, <laughs> covering you. a lot of ground. But, but I was going to say, um, you know, the that alternate ending that we got, or you know, the the I guess the ending that we've come to know, um, it does. I'm embarrassed to say it makes me feel a little bit better at the end because yeah. it's so hopeless, especially after he loses his partner. I mean, he's lost everyone in the town. He loses his partner. That's when he really stabs. I mean, he's just like, okay, and this that, is beyond dire. He's delirious, exhausted. 
and then he's almost getting run over and that's really probably the more realistic ending but they bring it back and they make us feel a little bit better at the end that like you said that they don't they don't give it to us all the way we don't know what happens next because who knows maybe they try to warn warn him and it's too late because it's already infiltrated um at least one person by the time he's there um so you know could be a situation where it's too late uh but they give us a little grain of hope at least <laughs> and, what, and, and what happens to his girlfriend and, and there are like it's a it's also i i want to say it was not a movie not a science fiction movie made for kids at the time it's an ad it's oh, a sure. movie made for adults uh yeah. and you know he obviously has a sexual relationship with dana winter they're not married yeah, there, there's some little, uh, some little uh, wink, wink things in there about that. Oh, for sure. Their entire relationship is kind of like dicey for the '50s. Like, yeah. you know, they keep mentioning that they're married, and I guess both of their spouses are gone or passed away. Like, do they address that, or is it just left vague? Well, there is something I find interesting. And in Dana Winter was a British actress. She was kind of the B-movie Elizabeth Taylor. She looked a bit like Elizabeth Taylor. Very beautiful actress. Um, No, she made lots of later films, TV shows. She was in um, Airport. In the movie Airport, she played Burt Lancaster's wife. Uh, (laughs) But she's clearly British. She makes no attempt to hide her British accent. So when when they're in the club and they meet a couple of other doctors from the town in the club... One of them talks about delivering her when she was born in the town. And I made me think, okay, when did she become British then? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And it's also awkward. Like this person you're interested. I remember when they were delivered, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> uncomfortable, but yeah, I thought um, she is so beautiful. Like it doesn't seem realistic. She would be in that town. Exactly. Uh, um, and, and her outfits are like so you know, tailored and crisp and just very fancy. Absolutely uh, beautiful. Yeah. You would think she'd have a modeling career or something, but exactly, yeah. but then what <laughs> happens to her is, <laughs> was a shock that just floored people in 1956. You know, yeah, I mean, because the, the beautiful, faithful, sweet woman always makes it. And, uh, and did nothing to quote unquote earn her bad end. So it's just right. something we're not seeing and you remember what when he knows earlier in the film he says i know you're new i'll i'll always know you by your kiss and then as they're laying on the floor of bronson cave there and he kisses her and the look in his face like oh shit yeah and her eyes look all like you know lifeless or whatever and yeah that that is one of the great moments in science fiction right there especially since it's so subtle and that, you know, there's not like special effects. I mean, you know, sometimes in the film we see like the pods and they're foamy and gross and we see the doubles and like that, that all looks really good. I think still. Uh, but you know, the scariest moments are not necessarily with those props. They're, they're the emotional, uh, you know, reactions and, and, and performances that the actors give. Yeah. I, I love the scene where they discover the pods in the, in the, um, greenhouse and they do Mm -hmm. they do it with some slanted some dutch angles or canada angles that's real funny if you read the stuff on imdb that allied artists they had told them they were the pot people were going to be naked 
and the models they had made of the stars were going to be naked. And they were really afraid that, you know, we can't have nudity in this film. And they're covered with the slime and bubbles anyway, so you can't really see it. <laughs> so funny to think how far we've come, you know, <laughs> now yeah. with like HBO and, and stuff, it's like that's not a concern anymore. But yeah, back then. Um, we've kind of, I mean, we've already started talking about some of your favorite scenes, but let's, let's dive into, can you pick like a few that really stand out to you, uh, um, every time you see this movie? Oh yeah. The, uh, oh, that the ending is just that a film like that, you know, it, that they at least tried to do that in 1956. What a, mm -hmm. uh. What a total uh, change to the way those movies were usually made at the time. And that's why when you see Kevin McCarthy in the 1978 version, he's doing the same thing. He runs mm -hmm. up to the car that Donald Sutherland is and Brooke Adams are in and starts yelling the same thing at him. He's going, you're next, you're next, they're coming for you. <laughs> but yeah. The, yeah, the and, and he's shot. so transformed by the end. Like we see him all frantic in the very beginning of the film. But then I don't know if you feel this way. I kind of forget about that yeah. as I'm watching the movie. He's really suave. He's charming. You know, everyone in the town loves him and trusts him and he's so important. And then by the end of the movie, he's back to that guy we saw at the beginning. And I think that's just such a great bookend. And also his uh, performance is so, I mean, it, I guess it's big, but it feels very like authentic and less theater, you know, I don't know how to say it, less, less over dramatic than what I would expect from that era too. Like, it's just really good. It, it translates well to today, I guess. Yeah. The, the, the pursuit scenes are great where they're hiding in the office where they get the, you know, the, the King Donovan and Larry Gates are going to, are trying to recruit them and they, uh, they attack them with the hypo surges. Gator <laughs> winners like, wow. Yeah, it's it's really goes against the grain of sci-fi movies at the time. There's no ending where the, you know, the hero and the girlfriend are going to, you know, run away and have a great time. And I, I give tons of credit to Kevin McCarthy. And I want to talk about him for a minute. He was a great sure. actor. Uh, he made his film debut in 1944. He was mm. a stage actor. He was in lots of TV he had gotten an Oscar nomination like three years before this, four years before this for uh, Death of a Salesman, for playing the elder son uh, in Death of a Salesman in mm. 1951. And uh, he was on lots of live TV and lots of movies of the 50s uh, when lots of 60s, all over 60s television uh, a famous episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, God, I, I could probably, if I think long enough, I'll even remember the title of it. Uh, Long Live something. Um, he was on uh, Alfred Hitchcock, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, uh, every Western, the Wild Wild West. Uh, now, I know a lot of this because in 2009, I did a tribute reel for him produced a tribute reel for his appearance at the Fort Lauderdale Film Festival. And among the things I had on there in uh, Marilyn Monroe's final film, The Misfits, he played her husband. Oh, okay. He Very has, cool. He has one scene that's exactly 30 seconds long in the early <laughs> part of the film, and I used that entire scene in his tribute reel. 
and I have done lots of tribute reels for lots of actors. That's the only time I use their entire role in the movie <laughs> as the clip because of exactly <laughs> yeah, he's, he was also in the best man with Henry Fonda, which they've been showing on Turner, Turner classic a lot lately and a uh, big hand for the little lady. Uh, now, once uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers got to be seen a lot on TV and the, the cult for that film just kept growing and growing and growing, he was in big demand to do sci-fi and horror movies. It just mm. had a new career in it. So that's why he's in so many. He's in Spielberg's movies. He's in Joe Dante's movies like The Howling. Uh, he's in uh, uh, Inner Space and just he just uh, had practically a new career come out of it uh, yeah. although he still did all kinds of parts he was in the uh, the distinguished gentleman with um, uh, Eddie Murphy as seen that my brother is also an extra in, <laughs> in that same no. <laughs> uh, but yeah Kevin McCarthy's in that he kept working till he was 95 now, wow. I did find out because I, I didn't use it in the tribute because I don't think it's a very good movie, but I found out a whole lot of people just know him for UHF, the movie with Weird Al Yankovic's oh movie. gosh, really? And he was the <laughs> kind of the... When you saw him first. Yeah, he was kind of the bad guy in that. And I finally watched it and I didn't think much of it. I didn't think it was very good. It was probably funny in the 80s. I didn't uh, make that connection, though. I have to go back and watch it but again. But then I found out a whole lot of people said, where was UHF? How could you not have that in there? And I, I think I had a couple of seconds of it in there in the last, in the, <laughs> the final scene. But so at the, uh, now I'll have to tell the story. This is the story behind the photo I sent you. Oh, yeah. And we're, we're going to post that uh, yeah, on Twitter. a couple Twitter. of photos. Of, uh, the, the morning after we did his award ceremony, he was in a wheelchair at that festival. He was just barely well enough to be there. He was 95. His parents died in the uh, flu epidemic in 1918. He was born in 1914. His, both his parents died in the flu epidemic. He talked about that a bit. And so the next day, as part of that festival, it's a regular thing. They have a cruise down the intercoastal in Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. And so I was there with my girlfriend. The other, uh, she's the blonde. The lady on his right with the dark hair was his wife. She was way younger than him. Well, yeah, if he's 95. <laughs> way, way younger. And uh, he was moved very slowly and he didn't talk a lot, but we were, we were talking with him. And she turned to him and she said, now, Kevin, this is the man who made your video last night. And he looked at me and his eyes got real wide. And he reached out and he did the okay sign at me. He didn't say a word. He just did the okay sign. And to me, that was praise from Caesar. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I could die happy now because Kevin McCarthy just gave me the okay sign over that. So nice. <laughs> that's what's happening in that photo. Okay. That's good context. I was wondering because you yeah, sent that. I actually got to help him into out of his wheelchair and into his limo one night. So I, that was great. Here was a guy, you know, I just loved for years. So, uh, oh, that's nice. it's nice heroes and they're, and they're nice. <laughs> huh? It's nice when you meet your heroes. Oh, and exactly. nice. <laughs> I've been yeah. 
very lucky to meet them. I got to do three things with Vincent Price, and he was my hero. Sadly, oh, never, sadly did not get a photo from him. I'm still trying to find some photos from the second event. Um, because of COVID, I haven't been able to do it, but I'm hoping if I can find the photos taken by the photographer at the second event that there might be one that me and Vincent are both in, but I'll find oh, out that would be cool. someday. Yeah. Uh, also in that movie, in, um, in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, we talked about King Donovan, was in other sci-fi movies like Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and Carolyn Jones, very well-known actress, famous for the Adams Family, the director, Sam Peckinpah, shows up in it. And he was the dialogue, uh, with the dialogue director on it. Later years claimed to have rewritten the script that's been widely refuted. Mm. That he did not do that or, or had very, had little input into it. But he plays a meter man in it. He has like one line of dialogue. So then he's listed in the opening credits in the cast. So yeah, wow. the director of the Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs is in there. Um, and I was trying to think other, uh, Larry Gates was a stage actor, well-known stage actor. I'm probably forgetting somebody else in it. Uh, I do recommend watch the 78, watch, watch the 56 version first, definitely. Watch it in one setting. Uh, or wait till Alamo Draft House opens back up again. Maybe they'll show it. <laughs> um, so, the, uh, yeah. And then watch, you can watch them in order, uh, particularly the 78 version, which I think is very well made. Um, the 93 one is harder to find. It didn't get much of a release. It's not real good. I think I watched it in my days at Blockbuster. I think I watched it on VHS once. Abel Ferrara, the director who made it, made Bad Lieutenant later, and some mm. real edgy New York films. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember it having a couple of pretty good moments in it, so uh, it's not a total waste. Uh, like I said, you the 2007 one is kind of a mess. I would watch anything that Nicole uh, Kidman and Daniel Craig are in. But they don't, sure. they're not well used in it either. Ugh, that's so. too bad. <laughs> that's rough. Um, when you were talking about, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy, and I was just thinking like that, you know, not only is he not playing a scientist, like you said uh, in the film, but I think he's also like, he's very charming and kind and stuff. But I noticed that he's not dismissive. You know, like, even though he he does try to reason with people like, hey, that can't really be happening. I did notice that he's very, like, sensitive to people in the film and he hesitates, like, more than I think a lot of, you know, I, I guess doctors would. I mean, I guess that's why he's the hero, right? Because he's he's a little bit more in tune with everybody, it seems like, in the movie. Yeah, and, and I also, I like that he's... He he was largely a character actor. He did a tour of Give Him Hell Harry after James Whitmore stopped doing it. And he did that play as Truman and uh, had great success with it on Broadway. And he was, you know, a very a, a renowned actor. I like that he's not the macho hero guy in it. Yeah, like, yeah, like... 
when that little boy that that scene where in, in the beginning where they're driving by that house or to the house and that little boy runs out there and they almost hit him and then yeah. you know, there's an exchange with the mother even though you know he doesn't jump to conclusions like obviously it's not realistic for him to be like i wonder if there's body snatchers but <laughs> he, he's like this is odd like this is an odd situation and you know there's a little bit of that uh you know monologue over it that's like i should have known right at that moment i i sensed something was off and like i feel i like that they plant that a lot throughout the film where somebody tells him something and he tries to reason with them but it does seem like he's kind of i wouldn't say swayed but it, it affects him that the other person believes it so much right you know like they keep he was like well how, how would you like with that girl's uh cousin or sister where you know he's like well, how would you know if they're acting just like them and they sound like them and they remember everything that person remembers, like what more is there? And then that person is like, I just, you know, a feeling I have right. about it and their emotions. And he doesn't go like roll his eyes. He's kind of like, huh, like how do I get through to this person to, to comfort them instead of his reaction being like that, you know, in a lot of like horror movies, especially the main male character they're usually like you're being so silly ladies and then by the end he's like oh no the ghosts are real or whatever but in this movie like he listens to everyone when they tell him they're afraid and i I just thought that was interesting and if they're not that and and particularly in science fiction they're either the wimpy scientist uh (laughs) (laughs) or they're the the macho military guy like kenneth toby was in several sci-fi movies or John Agar or the actors like that who are, you know, have a gun and they're, they're the macho guy hero. And he's, he's none of those. Uh, he was the perfect actor for that role. Yeah. Uh, I also want to point out, I'm looking at my notes here that I consider invasion of the body snatchers to be the first film noir sci-fi because it's shot like film noir and it's, um, yeah. Now, you could argue that, yeah, uh, them the year before kind of is, too, the one with the giant ants. It's shot and written and shot and directed like film noir. And I love that idea of combining those two genres. It's been done many times since. Blade Runner is film, science fiction film noir. Sure. Uh, Classic example. Uh, Not for the least of reasons is that it takes place in Los Angeles, which is the location of many a film noir movie. Uh, right. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you were talking about that in the beginning. I was like, like oh, yeah. Uh, and it is very much film noir, uh, body snatchers with the, the use of light and shadow and someone who turns out to be a femme fatale, only for much different reasons than usual in, in film noir, film noir like crime and mystery movies. So Very I, true. But she kind of acts a little bit like a femme fatale. You know, yeah. she's sort of... She's beautiful, but she's capable, a little bit more capable than sometimes the lead is. Um, and she is part of the action. Uh, she's She needs to be protected, but she's also kind of quick on her feet. Like she just kind of has some of those qualities that you would come to expect in a film noir. I, I completely agree. Yeah, she gets one of the syringes and stabs him with it uh, yeah. after they're both, you know, taken some drug presumably speed to stay awake and not fall asleep. And, uh, and then she falls asleep. Uh Oh, I I can't imagine anything worse. Maybe just, I really like sleeping, but that thought 
just it, it exhausts me you know like not only are you running from a, a life threatening situation but you can't sleep no i love my sleep i think yeah. that that very frightening to me in the 78 <laughs> version donald sutherland in that version he plays a health inspector so that's uh, another little interesting occupation to have but he calls yeah, it speed he just you know they're in the doctor's yeah, office he says here take some of this right now what is it it's speed it'll keep us awake <laughs> okay you're saying donald sutherland because you're mentioning that that movie i have to say this really quick i don't know if i've told you this before i'm going to bring it up every single time somebody mentions him but um, I had a friend, uh, she's, uh, my friend and my hairdresser, uh, her name is Tara. And she was telling me one time about a movie she saw on TV. And she said, uh, she said, I watched this movie yesterday, Lisa, that had Kiefer Sutherland in it, but he was wearing like old man makeup. And she kept talking about it. And I said, are you talking about Donald Sutherland? <laughs> and she goes, what? And I go, yeah, it's not old man makeup. That's his dad. And she was like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, yeah, he's like a huge star. Like, I mean, Keith Kiefer Sutherland is a huge star now. But I mean, his dad was like a really big star. But it's funny because we're the exact same age. But I feel like I do watch a lot of movies. And so someone my age or younger like I could see how they would make that mistake, but it's so funny to me. Every time somebody brings up Donald Sutherland, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up that story. <laughs> I don't even think they look exactly alike. It's funny. They don't. Why, why but do it you was, think that? I was telling you the plot of the movie and I'm listening to her and I'm like, I do not, I cannot think of a movie where Kiefer Sutherland has old man makeup. And then I was like, she means his dad. <laughs> I mean, he's already an old man, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you see uh, Donald Sutherland's very early stuff. He worked in Britain for a long time. He's Canadian by birth. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Uh, he doesn't really look like Kiefer. I don't. Yeah, he's very like thin and lanky, like compared to Kiefer. Um, you know, when I think of him, like in his sort of like you know when he was young, I think of Mash. You know, um, but yeah. yeah, I don't. Know. I always thought that was funny. <laughs> in Mash. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that that's that's funny comment though. I mean, I, that, yeah, I've never forgotten that. And and you're right. They they don't really look alike, but she could at least tell that they were related. I guess. It's like the, <laughs> she, I, you yeah. know when I ask the you know I teach film film TV courses and I try to you know when I ask my students young folks their favorite movie. If I ever hear anything made before the 80s, I'm just amazed, you know, because they think an old movie is something made in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, I've experienced that as well when people are like, oh, yeah, this old movie. And I'm like, ouch, that's old? They're there's like, a, no, classic movies. <laughs> there's a great joke about that in one of the Avengers movies where Spider-Man, you know, when now now as the kid, you know, the 18-year-old, what he was supposed to be, says, is talking about an old movie from the 80s and Robert Downey, like, rolls his eyes at him or something. Yeah, he, he, I think he, he references Star Wars and I think Back to the Future. Yeah, He's yeah. Like really, something really like old. That. He emphasizes really, really old, so it just really rubs it in. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, what else? Uh, what else, Lisa? Uh, let's see. Maybe I'll think of a couple of scenes that I really like too. Um, maybe I, I wouldn't say I loved it, but I found chilling, uh, when I, I mentioned earlier about the little boy running in the street and then later 
when he's in the office and he keeps insisting that's not his mom i'm like i'm glad i didn't see this as a kid because that concept would have really terrified me as a child i mean you know you can't think of anything worse right than your parents like being replaced and you're a kid no one listens to you like how do you explain that um i i like that that felt kind of twilight zone-ish in that scene to me yeah that that is a good observation um you know, I wasn't a kid when I saw it, but yeah, seeing that there are, um, yeah, some other like scary stuff with kids in it that I did see as a kid that I remember that, you know, being kind of disturbed by them, but yeah. apparently kids now see every R-rated movie. There's, I guess there's nothing to stop them from doing it. No. I, and, and even when I was a kid, like my husband and I have like really different childhoods where he saw like you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and all those horror films, my parents would not allow me to watch any of that. So he got to see everything as a kid and I did not. <laughs> so maybe I'm thinking of myself, the very sheltered kid that wouldn't have been able to see this. <laughs> yeah, I talked to, I talked to like people in my class who say, oh yeah, I saw The Exorcist when I was nine. And then there's- Oh my gosh, that would have ended me. <laughs> oh my God. One of my, one of my students- was talking about seeing Clockwork Orange when he was, and I said, I hope you weren't a kid when you saw it. And he said, no, no I was 17. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think a film like that is, uh, a film like Body Snatchers is one that would have different scares for different people in it. And, uh, you know, again, it's overriding theme was the, the loss of your humanity, the loss of your emotions. You know, what yeah, happens when a- you stop being human? Yeah, there's that scene where, you know, it's explained to the two main characters what's going to happen. And that's when their kind of romance really ramps up where she's like, I want to have your children. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to live life. And I was like, wow, this feels very like kind of modern, I guess. You know, Uh, it feels very, you know, emphasis on individualism for sure. (laughs) Um, Like you're saying your humanity, who you are and um, I, I kind of liked that scene too. It was sort of like, it, it sets how high the stakes are. They're like, they, and I think that can be hard to do when, you know, the bad guys look like regular people. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you have to keep emphasizing like, Hey, there's a lot to lose here. And you know, how do you do that? Uh, you can't just do that visually. You know, we saw the pods sure, but you can't like constantly show us these pods. So, you know, another way to express how scary the situation is, is for the main characters to, you know, express what they're losing. Yeah, it, you know, from hence comes the term pod people. Right. Uh, <laughs> still in use to, to this day. I did love reading in the, the stuff on IMDb that the promotion, some of the promotional stuff they did at the theaters when it opened was they had some of those pods in their paper mache or something. What I, what I wouldn't give to have one of those. Uh, that must have been so cool. Which I love that they did stuff like that. I feel like theaters don't do things like that anymore. No, with you know the advent of of you know multiplexes, it's real hard to do things like that. And they yeah. they have better ways to promote a film, you know, with the internet and everything. They do still do some 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 things like that, but. To be a PR person, a movie PR person in those days, you had to come up with stunts and publicity stunts and things like that. Now, I, I, I 
kind of think they probably were paper mache because when you watch the film, they don't look to weigh very much when people are carrying them. Yeah, yeah they don't. But they look good. I mean, yeah, I think it's in black and white helps a lot too. Oh yeah, I can I don't know if that movie's been colorized or not. Uh, a lot of the Allied artist stuff went to Republic, and I think Republic still owns it. Mm. Uh, and I don't know. I think there is a colorized version of it. I don't want to watch it. I mean, uh, black and white, a format I love, has its purpose, and and color kills it you know, nine times out of 10. Uh, Agreed. And plus, I feel like those pods would have looked too like little shop of horrors ish. Yeah. <laughs> Which was inspired by it, but still like, I, I think it would make it maybe a little too cartoonish. Too cartoonish or maybe not, you know, it would lose the atmosphere. It would lose mm-hmm. the film noir look. The pods might look fake. I, I do wish in the scene where he finds the pod in the back of the car, uh, I think it's obviously a scene maybe they rehearsed a lot because he doesn't even seem to be surprised. <laughs> he just opens the trunk, takes it out, sets fire to it with a flare. Uh, instead of like, oh my God, you know. Yeah, how'd this pod get here? How'd this pod get here? And it might have been in the wee hours after they had rehearsed that scene a bunch of times or or they had to wrap it up. Donald Siegel was just saying, let's let's do this scene really fast or something. Burn it, yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that, you know, uh, you like to imagine what Hitchcock would have done with it. And they did great things with it on the budget they had. I, I think so. And and I think, you know, you keep mentioning, we've mentioned a couple of times, like the tight runtime. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very exciting movie. I know like sometimes people complain that older films, not me, I'm fine with it. I like pacing. Uh, but you know, people will say that older films have like a slower pace and they do. Um, we've gotten to the point where movies are like crazy fast in my opinion, but, um, this movie is, is pretty fast paced. Um, it has great momentum. There's always something moving in the frame. Uh, the camera's moving, the actors are moving. And, and again, it's another thing that sets it apart from so many sci-fi movies of the fifties that are a lot of talk and, uh, you know, long stretches of just talk and uh, <laughs> yeah. nothing much happens until the final scenes. Like, uh, not not this one, which is, you know, why we still can enjoy it today. Yeah, there's not really a scene wasted yeah. in the movie. And um, I think that's good. Uh, I think, you know, because, like I said, I think it translates well to people to, to today. Uh, and, and you're right. In some movies, they talk and talk. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I had read that the what it's based on the serial that you talked about uh, did have more character development and more, uh, you know, more dialogue. And that the guy that originally wrote that was a little upset that so much of that was cut from the film. Yeah, Jack Finney. Um, and I'm, I'm going to make a guess that it was cut at the same time as the humorous stuff that they decided they didn't want, that maybe some of that humorous stuff was, was characterization and, and more explaining of the process of becoming the pod. And that's better explained in the second version. That movie does take some steps to try to show you how the pods take over the people. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing that is, that was another uh, victim of the, the massive cuts they made in it. And I have, 
I have not, I'll be honest, I have not read the original novel uh, as the novel or the serialized version of it. What, I, what I've been told is the ending of it that the aliens just kind of give up. They just, they just decide they can't, they're not, humans are too tough for them. They're not going to take them over. And they just really? give up and leave. Which oh, that's not satisfying. <laughs> not a very impactful ending for a movie. So <laughs> you know they had to do something. <laughs> in trouble. We're gonna just we're just gonna go. Yeah, I wouldn't like that as much. I think if I were a, a writer, I think that I would be like upset about character development. But I think as a film, you know, films are different from books. Yes. Um, and so I think for the medium that it's in, uh, for the high concept it's trying to get across i think too much dialogue and character development which is it's crazy for me to say this because those are the two things i love the most but i do think that could have weighed the movie down i think it i think it's memorable because they cut some of that it may be it may be that uh you know that uh, with the other stuff in it it breaks up the pacing maybe mm -hmm. the humor was too distracting i don't know we, we just don't know but it might have hurt the pacing. Oh, I did remember one more thing um, I wanted to point out on Kevin McCarthy. He did a second cameo in uh, after the 78 invasion of the Body Snatchers. In, uh, he does the character again in the second Looney Tunes movie, uh, Looney Tunes Back in Action. <laughs> he, he shows up as Dr. Bunnell in that one, too. <laughs> so. Nice. <laughs> I have not seen it, but I've read it, and I'm dying to see it. The, the clip is probably on YouTube. I'm if sure. You, if you look up the trailer, Invasion of the Body Snatchers has a pretty interesting trailer. If you look mm -hmm. at it, they shot the the trailer has an introduction by Kevin McCarthy, obviously shot at the same time when they shot the new bookends, because it's on oh, that okay. set. It's uh, with uh, with Bissell and, and uh, Richard Deacon. And he like, while he's talking to them, he suddenly turns to the camera and starts addressing the audience. You uh, don't believe this nightmare. You have to see it with your own eyes. You know, it's it's kind of uh, corny, but uh, it's <laughs> it, it's kind of memorable. And it's clearly, yeah. Look that up. Put a link to it. Uh, put a link to the trailer. Okay. Uh, you'll see. You'll see. Well, did we? Uh, do you feel like we covered everything? Was there anything else in your notes that we hadn't touched on yet? Oh, I'll probably remember after we hang up. But uh, boy, we've said a lot. I could, you know, a movie yeah. like this that I love, I could talk for two hours on easily. Well, it's a good movie. Um, so my last two questions that I always ask: uh, number one, um, you know, if you had to summarize it, we've talked about it this whole time, but if you had to summarize it. Why do you think you've seen this movie so many times? Why do you, why do you think you love it so much? Uh, I think as with all great films, it has new meaning every time you see it. You see something you didn't see in it before. Or you're in a different point in your life when it has different meaning. What Maybe in this case, what um, losing your humanity, you losing what makes you you means at different times in your life. True. What, yeah, it's a story that can be updated. What it's uh, due to just plain age, to addiction, to mental problems, to depression, to whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you learn more about the time in which it was made and um, what it meant to them. 
what it, you know, uh, I kind of, I have in the past compared it to a film that has nothing in common with whatsoever, except it just has a really fascinating theme and that it's a wonderful life. That, no, you know what? When we were talking about this, I thought about it's a wonderful life. I yeah. think because of the town. Yeah. Well, because I, I, there, there's a connection between the main character and George Bailey somehow. Yeah. When he does the nightmare version of Pottersville and nobody mm-hmm. recognizes him and that the people he loves have changed. Yeah. Yeah. They're not the people he loved anymore. They've turned into something far worse. See, I, there's more links there than I even realized. I always, there's more specifics in the fact that they have a, a, a memorable theme. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I'm glad you said that. Um, I, um, for me, like, I think I just have a big place in my heart um, for, you know, 50s and 60s films it's almost like I can't explain. It's like a relief wash it washes over me when I watch them. I don't know. I they're just comforting, and like when you picked it, I was like, oh good, I get to watch one of these kinds of movies. You know, um, I just really enjoy that age of cinema, um, and I love sci-fi. So like anytime cool. someone picks sci-fi, I'm like, oh, like rub my hands together. Can't wait to talk about this. So I I love this movie because like we've kind of mentioned already, the runtime is really good. Um, It's solid. I feel like you could sort of, I'm always preaching on the show. I feel like this is one of those films you could be like, okay, you say you don't like older movies, you know, watch this one. I think this is a really good one um, that would translate to audiences today. Um, Yeah. I just think it's such a solid film. It ages phenomenally. You know, I just popped it in and watched it again and was completely entertained the entire time that I saw. Watch it, it in at night in one setting. It's it's not long, yeah. from beginning to end. Don't stop it if you're watching it like on a Blu-ray or something. Get the full effect. Exactly. Oh, you said there's two things. What's the other one? You said there's two things oh. you always ask. Questions. Uh, the second question is, what is your like elevator pitch to somebody? Like if they haven't seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers what do you tell them it's either about or that you like about it to kind of hook them and make sure that they watch the movie? I would say, I said, I said, I know you've seen a million movies and TV shows and everything about identity takeover, but you really ought to see the movie that really explored that the first time mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in the way that that movie does. And it'll tell you more about the politics of the fifties than just about any other movie I can think of. And about the the way people were thinking about their lives as Americans, and it's also yeah. just a lot of fun. It's suspenseful, um, and uh, you'll see where uh, you know s- over sixty years of other films with a similar theme have gotten their ideas from. Yeah, I think anytime there's you know something in pop culture that we revisited a bunch of times it's always a good idea to go back and see the original you know what where did all this come from and um it's you can see why it started you know why why so many other movies have duplicated it because it's such a good film yeah great well uh thank you so much for coming back um did you have anything you wanted to plug before you head out oh plug my website (laughs) gordon k smith dot com absolutely uh check out my martin landau video it's on the top of the page it's it's uh 
the one thing I've done that's gotten the most uh, most attention, I think. Um, except for the people who got mad at me because I didn't have more from Space 1999 in it. I just had a few seconds. <laughs> Because I, I'm sorry. I thought Space 1999 was not a very was a bad show. I thought it. You're was, like I made the real. I decide what goes in. <laughs> I thought it was kind of a, a poor imitation of a British imitation of Star Trek. I mean, I'm not sorry they made it. I just thought it was far from his best work. Mm. So, but a lot of people loved it, and I got I got a lot of comments. Oh, know. that's funny. Well, when you come back, we've got to, you know, again, you, you mentioned that you'll pick something besides sci-fi, but don't don't feel like you have to. Uh, as I said, I love talking sci-fi, so we definitely have to have you come back. I'm sure you've got a list of movies. Oh, yeah. That, might, yeah, that you want. might you talk know. about Fantastic Voyage next time or yeah. one of those. Awesome. You bet. Well, thanks so much and uh, have a good one. You too, Lisa. Thanks a lot. Always, always a pleasure to do this. 